The scripture reading today is from Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. Hear the word of the Lord. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, just as he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless before him in love. He destined us for adoption as his children through Jesus Christ, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace that he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and insight, he has made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure that he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to gather up all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. In Christ, we have also obtained an inheritance, having been destined according to the purpose of him who accomplishes all things according to his counsel and will, so that we, who were the first to set our hope on Christ, might live for the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you had heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and had believed in him, were marked with the seal of the promised Holy Spirit. This is the pledge of our inheritance toward redemption as God's own people, to the praise of his glory. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Deborah. And let me add my welcome to Donna's, to all of you this morning. It's always such an uplifting, encouraging thing to me personally to be together with you as we gather to praise and worship the Lord that we have met in Jesus Christ. And of course, we want to uh, welcome those of you who are with us online, remotely as well. We have a sense of our being one in Christ, even though we are still separated by time and place in some cases. So we are glad to have you with us this morning. I still have a clear sense, as uh, some of you do, uh, of the joy, uh, also a little bit of the fatigue, I think, from last Sunday, just the uh, the extravagant sense that we all had of being in the presence of God last Easter Sunday. A lot of you noticed it and said something to me, the, word, the words palpable joy. Uh, that was a phrase that I heard from several of you. What was it about the service? Some of you commented on the music. One of you said the sermon wasn't too bad. <laughs> I want to suggest, though, that the answer lies elsewhere. Psalm 22. Psalm 22, we know, was much on Jesus' mind at the end of his earthly life. 
Psalm 22 declares, the Lord is enthroned in the praises of his people. If you are more comfortable or more familiar with the cadences of the King James, you might know that verse as the Lord inhabits the praises of his people. Could it be that in our worship last week in particular, we tasted the living presence of Christ in our midst as he promised? Through the power of the Holy Spirit, we received something of the life-giving assurance of God's faithfulness, even in the face of death? Could it be that we sensed a deepening, that Christ's resurrection life is for us both the hope and the promise of our own resurrection? I think that goes a long way toward explaining it. And the good news is that the Lord is no less risen today than he was last week. In just a few weeks, we're going to be welcoming a new senior pastor, Ray Hilton, and his wife, Judith. And I just can't tell you how I continue to be excited at the way the Lord wove together Ray's sense of call with the sense of our pastor nominating committee and uh, to look forward to his coming. To have that committee choose a pastor who loves Christ, whose own life has been transformed by Christ, who has pastoral gifts that will be put into service here in this place and with us. So in these intervening weeks, I thought it would be really good for us to remember the vision that the Apostle Paul lays out for the church, something about its mission and its vision in the first three chapters of Ephesians. It's a cosmic vision. It is a glorious vision. I hope you picked up on how often Paul used that word glory or some form of it, even in these opening verses from Ephesians. Here in these chapters, we, we catch a glimpse of the grandeur of God's redemptive mission in Jesus Christ, alive and present to us here and now, today, this morning. And here in these same verses, we get a clear vision of our purpose as a particular church called to follow Jesus Christ. So, I want to invite you all to give yourself to the regular reading of these three chapters. Not just the passage that you're anticipating is coming up the next week in worship, but to read all three chapters together in one sitting two or three times a week. It's not long, but it's big. Wouldn't it be a great gift to give to Dr. Hilton that he would arrive to find that we are of one mind, one purpose in mission, to invite him to lead us in the way of Jesus Christ? I know that if I were in his shoes, I would love coming into just that kind of environment. Just a little bit of background, not too much as we begin. Paul had spent quite a bit of time in Ephesus, and we know this from Acts chapter 19. And when he said his farewells to those elders in Acts chapter 20, so deep had that bond become between him and those Ephesian believers that there were tears all around. And those tears were in part due to the challenge that the church knew that it faced. Those first Ephesian Christians were relatively few in number, but quite aware 
that they represented in their beliefs and in their practices a clear and radical alternative to the two dominant objects of religious affection in their own time and place. The worship of Caesar and the worship of the goddess Artemis or Diana. Read Acts chapter 19, for example, if you want a snapshot of the conflict that erupted when Paul and the other Christians in Ephesus threatened the worship business, the lucrative worship business of those other two religious approaches. Ephesus was a major city in what is today Western Turkey. It was at the nexus of major trade routes <clears throat> with a wonderful deep port that opened onto the Aegean Sea. It was a wealthy city, well known, as I said before, for its imperial cult, the worship of the emperor, and for the temple of Artemis. That temple is what we know of as one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was the center of a fertility cult that spread throughout the Near East. That temple was large enough to hold three Parthenons within it, or more to our frame of reference, five U.S. capitals would fit inside that temple with room to spare. But the city had begun to lose some of its luster because its harbor, its great economic heartbeat, was beginning to silt up, and they didn't have a U.S. Army Corps of Engineers to come in and help them out. In fact, some of you have been to Ephesus today, and it is a city in ruins. And if you were to measure the distance between the city and the Aegean Sea today, it is seven miles. And it's not the city that moved. Its glory was beginning to fade when we read Ephesians. And now Paul and the Christians there were adding to the city's anxieties by competing with the very religious impulses that many in the city counted on to help the city survive. They were proclaiming the one true God in the face of emperor worship, in the face of fertility cult worship. One true God who was greater than the emperor, dangerous indeed, greater than the goddess. And from Ephesians 1, and the message that we hear proclaimed there, we begin to see why. And in fact, there is no more emperor. There is no more goddess Artemis. But all over the world, you will find those who, like us, bend the knee to our Savior, Jesus Christ. Glory. Glory. The word shows up all through this opening text. What exactly is glory? We typically think of it in terms of athletic achievement, don't we? Or a great victory on the battlefield. Have you heard the phrase recently, glory to Ukraine? And we can, offer, we can often know who those glorious ones are, and we don't need a full name. We know the glorious ones by their first names. Achilles, Alexander, Napoleon, Serena, Kobe, LeBron, and for a certain generation, Taylor, maybe? Glory as fame, as repute, 
greatness. I think that's probably the, the first sense we, we have when we hear the word glory. But there's another way to understand the idea of glory. When our family's able to get a few days and, and go to the beach in North Carolina, I, I often awake early before the rest of the family and slip on a pair of shorts and a t-shirt and head out into the early morning pre-dawn light. And there I find that there are folks on the beach who've gotten there ahead of me. And they're all sitting in their chairs or standing and everybody is looking in the same direction. There's nothing out there, but everybody's looking in the same direction. They are anticipating the sunrise. Even on cloudy days, the breaking of the dawn with the new light of day. People know instinctively that it, is, it must be a regular sign of God's faithfulness to this creation of, of his. Nobody doesn't go because they think the sun's not going to come up that day. It's a glorious thing to behold. G.K. Chesterton imagines God watching the sunrise that he created, clapping his hands and saying, do it again, do it again. Oscar Wilde, commenting on a sunrise, says, where others, where others see but the dawn coming over the hill, I see the sons of God shouting for joy. It is a glorious thing. Glory in this sense has more to do with light, with splendor, with brilliance. If you know your Old Testament, think of God appearing to Israel as a pillar of fire and cloud. His glory leading stubborn Jewish people out of Egypt and bondage. Or think of the Mount of Transfiguration in the Gospels. Jesus there gives us a glimpse of his brightness against which we will all be shielding our eyes when he comes again in glory. Glory in both of these meanings underlies Paul's vision in Ephesians, even as he himself is writing for, from prison. It shows up everywhere in this little letter, and I think it's worthy of our particular attention. Paul himself knew what it meant to live one's life by a different story. He himself was a Pharisaic Jew, and that he knew that that story needed to be set apart, set aside, in order to make room for the greater story of Jesus Christ. So did early Christians, when faced with the stories, the competing stories of an emperor worship, or the worship of the goddess Artemis. In the same way, we have to pay attention to the other stories that are all around us, that come at us every day. The world would capture our imaginations with these other stories, and sometimes without us even being aware that we are being held captive. The stakes are high for us. The competition is loud and often compelling and attractive. But the Apostle Paul has staked his life and would have us do the same on the story of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who holds your life and mine, indeed, who holds the entire created order of things in his hands. Time, space, history, the future, the victory of love over hatred and evil, all things, Paul says. Look at verse 10. His purpose 
is nothing less than the redemption, the making good, bringing back to its intended order and purpose everything in heaven and on earth to bring it all once again under the lordship of Jesus Christ. What a story we inhabit. What scope. It is unmatched in all of the religious traditions of the world. For Paul and for Christians everywhere and at all times, including us, this story is the one true story. Life as it was supposed to be has been given back to us in Jesus Christ. He works out everything, says Paul here in verse 11, in conformity with his will. Why? So that we might be, verse 12, so that we might be for the praise of his glory. There's that word again. Glory. I want to try to take you one step further in the vision that we're given here so that we might be, as a congregation here at MPC, that we might be for the praise of God's glory. I briefly described two ways that we understand glory in our common usage, as reputation or fame, and as light or brilliance. But in the way the Bible understands glory, these two ways of thinking about glory come together in service to a grander, more profound meaning that we find expressed in the Hebrew word for glory, which is the word kavod. The Hebrew word for glory translates best as our word weight. W-E-I-G-H-T, meaning to have substance or density. Now, some of you know that I have a love-hate relationship with scales. And I went to the doctor recently, and I was prepared. I had on a pair, I had the bare minimum that would be acceptable in public. <laughs> pair of shorts, t-shirt, sandals that could come off. I even held my breath as I stepped on that scale. I wanted less weight. I wanted less density. I wanted less substance. I wanted my doctor's smile. But friends, I don't want a lightweight God. I want a heavyweight. The Hebrew idea behind the glory of God is that the God we have come to know in Scripture is like George Foreman or Muhammad Ali. The God we have come to know in Scripture is the very definition of reality itself. There is none greater. There is nothing more dense. He is existence in perfection. The glorious one. And every other God, not to mention every self-proclaimed human glory, is a lightweight by comparison. Let me take you back to your Sunday school days. Do you remember the story in Daniel chapter 5? about a proud king named Belshazzar who threw a feast at which the various false gods and goddesses were being worshipped and praised. And suddenly a hand appears, writing on the wall. The king is terrified, and what does he do? He calls Daniel, the Hebrew prophet, 
to interpret the writing. Daniel looks at the, the writing, meeny, meeny, tikal upharsin, it says. In effect, Daniel says it means your days are numbered and your kingdom, O king, has come to an end. You have been weighed in the scales and found wanting. In other words, Bel Belshazzar was a lightweight. And he had become more so by giving himself to the worship of gods and goddesses who were false and destructive. Daniel said, King Belshazzar, your glory has departed. And he died that night. In truth, all of us friends are lightweights. If we live to ourselves, trusting in our own weightiness, if we think our primary pursuit is our own self-actualization or our own authenticity, we'll find ourselves facing the handwriting on the wall. In spite of our wealth, our would-be sophistication, our learning, our cleverness, our power, every one of us will stand on that scale and be inspected, weighed against the reality, the absolute perfection of God. When measured against him, reality itself, all claims to glory that we would make are only echoes, pale lights, pretenders. The Apostle Paul at one point was willing to stake his future on his own glory. We have a list he gives us, I think it's in Galatians, of all of his accomplishments before he met Christ. But after being weighed in the scale in that Syrian dust on his way to Damascus, he came to the truth. He faced the truth of his own lightweightness. He understood that he, along with all of his fellow Jews and all the Gentiles that he so despised, all alike are lightweights, puffing themselves up when in truth they were so small when compared to the glorious one, Jesus Christ. I'm not a big fisherman. I remember very clearly my first fish because I think I've only caught about five in my whole life. I was in Naples, Florida with my grandfather and I caught a little puffer fish. There aren't many photographs of me as a kid, but I remember this one. I'm standing on the dock and I'm really proud and I'm holding the line up like this. And at the end of this thing, you need a microscope to actually see the fish that I caught. But he was, as small as he was, he was blowing himself up as big as he could. I feel like that's us. We stand in the world and we blow ourselves up as big as possible, maybe to scare people off when we're intimidated and afraid. Maybe because we think we're bigger than everyone else. The Apostle Paul came to see in the bright light of Jesus Christ that he shone only because he was shined upon. Very much like our own moon in the sky. It only shines at night because it's shone upon by the brightness of the glorious sun. Paul knew that he was but a poor reflection of that one far more glorious one. So he can say, we were chosen, as Kristen said to the children earlier, we were chosen 
that we might be for the praise of his glory. In other words, that we would be so lovingly brought into life with God, restored to communion with him, that we are given the weightiness of Jesus Christ by his death, his resurrection and ascension. That we become participants, reflections of his brightness, given his life, his purpose, to live all of life back to God in one grand alleluia. A glorious life that we could not even imagine left to ourselves. Our future secured, even if writing as Paul was at the moment from a jail cell, or if we find ourselves in a pandemic, or in a foxhole, or in a hospital room, or trying to make the best decisions we can in an economic downturn. And because we are weak, he has given us himself, Paul says, in the person of the Holy Spirit, to do that work in us when we can't do it ourselves, to reproduce in us the very image of the glorious one. He is the down payment, Paul says, the guarantor, even when we are faced with our own anxieties and fears and griefs and uncertainties. The Holy Spirit at work in us is the same Spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. That is the Spirit who has taken up residence in everyone who names the name of Jesus Christ as Lord. The Holy Spirit keeps alive in us the desire for our true home. And how do we nurture and train that longing, that conviction? A friend of mine, a pastor in Birmingham, recounted the visit he made to an older friend who was in physical decline, a man named Jack. Jack asked his wife to read his favorite New Testament passage. It was the first chapter of Ephesians. The vision turns out that he had read to him every day not just through the difficult parts of life, but through all of his life, in the dark nights and on the bright days, a steady lighthouse, beckoning, directing, directing, brightening, protecting, always shining faithfully, helping him see the way home. It is the great challenge that faces every single one of us at every age and stage in our lives, to know our purpose and to live our lives toward it. In Jesus Christ, we see the answer. I know this will sound strange to many ears, but it has been the secret to the faithfulness of the church of Jesus Christ. Seek first the kingdom of God. Seek first the glory of God and allow that to determine our actions, no matter how unpopular or however seemingly foolish we may appear. No decision made towards such an end as the glory of God can lead in the end to anything other than our own fulfillment and satisfaction. But of course, when that time comes, our own satisfaction will be our last concern. 
And I say to you again this morning, the Lord is risen. Let's try it again. The Lord is risen. To him be all praise and glory. Let's pray. Lord, we give you thanks and praise. We exalt your holy name. We thank you for drawing near to us in the person of Jesus Christ, for pouring out your Holy Spirit upon us. You have opened our eyes to a vision and a future that we could never imagine. Thank you, Lord, for your resurrection life at work in us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.